the vast majority of marketing that we as consumers, you know, either business consumers or B2C type of consumers are faced with and the types of marketing that we remember that we're exposed to are almost exclusively the negative ones, right? So you don't remember great marketing like, oh, I, you know, I heard a podcast, there was this really interesting guest. So I went and checked out their blog and I loved what they were doing. So I subscribed. And then a few months later, I actually needed the product that their company offers. And so I bought it. You don't even think of that as marketing. Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Everyonehatesmarketer.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. Uh, we'll, be, we'll notify you before anybody else of our future guests. Uh, you'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. Uh, you'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also, quite simply, to have great one-to-one -one conversation if you need any help. What's up, everybody? This episode is probably the most honest and transparent and open conversation I ever had on, on this podcast. And it's with Rand Fishkin, the co-founder and ex-CEO of Moz, the SEO software. So Rand Fishkin is known to be one of the best marketers out there, one of the most transparent. And during this hour, we're going to talk about a lot of things. We are going to talk about Donald Trump and, and what the type of marketer he is. Um, I also asked Rand what he would do with $100 or 100 euros in one month or six months to generate $1,000 or 1,000 euros. So the exact things he would do if he had to generate 10x return. Rand is also sharing a very personal story that happened a few years ago in Moz, and that's worth a listen if you're ever managing people. He's also going to explain why mostly we remember shitty marketing and not good marketing, and exactly how to win awareness, respect, and trust of the people who, who would buy from you. So, as usual, have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, Rand. Thank you so much for taking your time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. Look forward to it. You're very welcome. So, first question. If Donald Trump was a marketer, what type of marketer would he be? Hmm... Well, let's see. He is very effective at playing on people's fears. Uh, he's a very effective uh, group segmenter. So he basically, you know, sorts people by their identities and then creates either uh, great love for him or tolerance for him because the hatred of the other group is stronger. So I think he's, um, I would say he is a powerful marketer, but a black hat marketer, you know, very, uh, he sort of uses dark patterns in people's psychology and psychoses to manipulate them um, to support things that they don't actually want. I think, uh, you know, most of the a lot of the U.S. media has focused on how the, the people who voted for him have a very different impression of uh, what he and the Congress will do than what they are going to actually do or what they have been doing. And so I think support for him very strong. 
uh, among his voters, but support for his policies, I should say, it's also very strong, but only because of him, right? Support for those policies in the absence of this demagogue is, uh, is quite, quite lacking. So fascinating individual. So that's the type, that's the answer I was kind of looking for. And I think it's a good introduction for the episode. He's definitely a black hat marketer, isn't he? I'm trying to find a, a better term for it, but I think black hats in the world of marketing is quite a good term for him. So thanks for that. Second question I have for you. Let's say I give you $100 or 100 euros at this day and age is around the same. And I give you that to generate 10x the amount. So 1000 dollars or euros in sale online for a new software that I'm selling. And all of that within a month, let's say. How would you do nope. it? No? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> within a month. No. <laughs> within uh, six months. Yeah, yeah. Six months. Six months, totally possible. So let, let's see. I'll describe the, the way I would go about it. Um, if I had to, but it's a low success rate, like very low odds of success in that first month. So with $100, I would probably spend uh, something between 20 and 50 of those dollars on uh, three different platforms. One would be uh, retargeting and remarketing. And I'd probably split that a little bit between Facebook and the Google AdWords network. Uh, some of it would be direct on Facebook ads for lookalike audiences of people who've already bought the product. So you say new software product, hopefully there's at least 10 to 20 buyers, you know, who you've gone through in your MVP that you have. And so you can, you know, uh, basically create profiles of around 50 to 100 people like them, upload that to Facebook uh, and say, like, I want more people like this, show my ad to them. And then the third one would be bidding on AdWords ads. Uh, for people who search for the particular terms and phrases that you think are most likely to be your customer audience. And hopefully you've done some research, right, where you actually talked to people who uh, wanted your product and said, hey, if you were looking for a product like this, what would you search for in Google? And then you did some keyword research based on those answers. So those three platforms are where I'd spend those dollars. I would not expect to get 10x return. I would expect to barely break even but to learn enough so that the next month I could go spend some money and improve my ROI. Um, yeah. If you gave me six months to do it, I would take those $100. Uh, I would buy myself a great bottle of whiskey. And, um, and then I would sit down and I would uh, start writing and illustrating and uh, doing surveys and gathering data and doing research and putting together, you know, what I thought was high quality content that, and I should, I shouldn't even say high quality content, because I think people think of just, oh, yeah, I should just write some really good content. No, 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 you shouldn't just write some really good content. What you should do is you should talk to your audience and figure out who their influencers are, right? So if, if, if I say, oh, uh, Rand Fishkin, someone in my audience, who influences Rand? All right, I'm going to plug Rand's Twitter account into uh, Little Bird or Follower Wonk or something like that. I'm going to see the people that uh, he retweets the most. I'm going to see the domains from which he shares URLs the most. Now I'm going to go try and influence those same people because I know that's how I'll get to my customer Rand. And uh, that's exactly what I would try and do. Create not high quality content, but content that those outlets and those people would be most likely to amplify. And I would give them a great reason to do that because it, 
you know, supports some theory that they've got, or it supports some message they're trying to share, or it uh, reinforces something that they've been uh, proselytizing out there on the web already, um, you know, fits with their audience, will help them get more followers, whatever it is, right? Like, I, I try and work to their needs. And I'd probably spend, you know, four or five of those months developing a bunch of those pieces of content and then running them by those people and building those relationships with no expectation of return. And I'd spend the last 60 days maybe doing a little bit of paid amplification or promotion and a lot more outreach um, to get those, you know, directly in front of the folks I care about. For the listeners who are quite confused about the whiskey, it doesn't have to be whiskey. You can buy <laughs> beer or vodka. It works, right? A grappa, I mean, whatever you want. You know. Okay, it's, but you uh, have to people. use that. It's, it's the step one anyway. Uh, in your in your tactic, right? That's a fantastic answer to start the podcast. Uh, I I just like to step take a step back and and say how much I think you are one of the people out there who make marketing give marketing a better name, uh, mm -hmm. make internet a better place. And I know you're a very humble guy and very transparent guy and honest guy, but I genuinely I'm truthfully telling you that yes, I think you're one of the the person I admire the most for this particular reason. Well, so, I, thank you. That's very kind. So I assume that means like Donald Trump and I opposite ends of the marketing spectrum. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you're more than white hats. You're this kind of, you know, the Gandalf, Gandalf in, in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah. That's how I see you. Uh, oh boy. I, yeah. I hope I don't have to fight any Balrogs soon because I am <laughs> feeling yeah. old and weak. <laughs> I think you, I think you did with Google uh, a few times. Anyway. <laughs> oh, that's fair. <laughs> uh, So you're also pretty vocal about a lot of stuff you care about, which I also admire. And you've been in the business for more than 20 years. I don't want to make you feel like you're an old guy. You're not, but you have a lot of experience in it. Uh, you started Moz uh, by doing consulting and then you moved on to software. And you've been very transparent as well about how, how you struggle to start with, like how many years you struggle financially how your wife and fiance or girlfriend at the time was very supportive of you. I mean, you're the type of person where I think a lot of people know a lot about you and feel that like they know you. And then you talk yeah. to them, you're like, who are you anyway? You know everything about me. I don't know nothing about you. Um, <laughs> but I'm going, I'm coming to, uh, I'm coming up with a question very soon. So I'm curious to know, first of all, what type of kid were you, uh, at school and in your daily life? Yeah, so one of the tragic things about me is I have a terrible memory, um, which works in my favor in two big ways. One, uh, I love going back to places I've already been, because I don't remember them that well. And two, uh, I can watch a, a TV show or a movie, you know, five or 10 years after I first saw it, and be totally surprised by the, you know, cliffhanger ending again, which is also great. But it's terrible for when I have to recall my childhood or the past. So what I do... I mean, I was a very, I was a very tiny kid, um, which, you know, the American school system, especially American public schools, that, that means you get beat up a lot. Um, so I, I didn't get beat up a lot, but you know, you remember those, right? So uh, I definitely got bullied and harassed a good amount. And I was a, a fairly shy introverted kid, but someone who also craved affection and attention. Right. Which I think is pretty obvious even now. You know, it's clear, clearly like, well, what's driving Rand? Why does he keep writing all this stuff? Why does he keep putting all this out there? Like, 
he doesn't need to. Maz is going fine. Like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't add that much more uh, to his business or his life. Why is he doing it? And it's because, you know, I, I have this giant hole in my chest that can only be filled by, you know, the praise of people on Twitter going, this is the best thing I've ever read. Thank you so much for helping me. Right. So um, I think that's continued, continued from childhood on. Um, I'm also someone, you know, I really, uh, I care a lot about other people. Like I just, I want them to be healthy and happy and, um, to be able to find, you know, love and growth and career success and whatever it is. Um, so those are, yeah, those are traits I, I carry from high school. I probably told way too many people in high school about someone else who had a crush on them when I wasn't supposed to, <laughs> you know, in the hopes that they would eventually, uh, I don't know, make out behind the gym. Um, I didn't go as well as you'd want it to go. People generally didn't like that. Uh, but you learn, you know, you slowly, you slowly build some um, emotional intelligence. And I think that's actually, that's something that served me really well as a marketer is to have that, um, you know, understanding of what makes people tick and what pisses them off and what uh, attracts them and interests them. I, I think marketing is very much, especially broad scale sort of, you know, digital web marketing is a lot about uh, individual empathy applied to um, coherent groups. And that's a, that's a practice that I would certainly urge other marketers to invest in. So do you think that because you are quite a, a shy or introvert kid and therefore you took a step back from others and observed them from your own point of view, do you think this is how you developed the empathy that you have today for people? Yeah, gosh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure whether the, whether the introversion um, and the shyness was a result of feeling uncomfortable and then that that created this like strong desire to get more comfortable with people and understand them or whether it's sort of a you know correlation but not causation um you had yeah. to mention that you had to mention causation and correlation in the <laughs> first 10 minutes didn't you <laughs> <laughs> it's an uh, important principle right it is absolutely so just to, to 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 make it brief causation is when there is an actual cause and effect when something actually caused something else to do something with correlation correlation. I'm going to try to explain it and you're probably going to explain it better is, Oh, it's a weaker link. It's something happens and then something else happens, but it's difficult to find the cause. Is it, is that it? Yeah, I think uh, correlation can mean that the two things are causal, right? That, that um, thing X caused thing Y, but it could also mean that uh, thing X and thing Y may uh, happen together, but may be totally unrelated. So for example, um, in the, you know, one of the things that I, I think a lot of folks use is um, ice cream sales are highly correlated with hot weather, right? But if you, if lots of people go out and buy lots of ice cream, the weather will not warm up, right? Like that, the, the, the causation actually runs the other way, right? It's when the weather warms up that, that, that the ice cream happens. Uh, likewise, um, I think if I remember correctly, uh, ice cream sales and what should we call it? Calorie consumption. Oh, oh, ice cream sales and, um, uh, uh, murder rates, 
are, are uh, highly correlated with each other, right? So you basically, when you see a, a day where there's lots of ice cream sales in a city, you also see a day when, when murders go up. But neither one is causing the other one. It's not like people, you know, take a bunch of licks of chocolate and are like, okay, that's it. Get me the gun, right? Uh, the, the, you know, the, the causation of both of those is a, se- is a secondary thing, which is key. Right. And so it turns out that when weather is hot, uh, you know, people tend to stay out later. Uh, people tend to be angrier and more frustrated. Um, and violence often comes from that. So, you know, it's kind of sad in Seattle when uh, when we have like a 95 or a 96 degree day. And I'm like, ooh, man, some ice cream sounds great today. I get to wear shorts and flip flops. Shoot, somebody's probably going to die. Right. Like you have to you have to try and train your brain not to go in that direction. But um, but those things are all connected. So, yeah, correlation and causation. Important principle for marketers to understand, because when we look at data, you know, we will often see things that look connected. And then we have to experiment in order to figure out whether they're actually uh, causal or whether they're merely correlated. And this happens all the time with folks falsely attributing, you know, an investment that they've made or. Uh, something that they've done with a result in their business um, and then getting thrown way off track. How do you quickly, how do you test that causation or correlation? Yeah. So uh, this is one of the things where correlation is awesome, awesome for forming theories, right? So what you want to do is you want to take a look at two data points and you say, gosh, you know, we have been uh, producing content at a rate of, I don't know, a post, a a new post a week uh, for the last 20 weeks. But the last three weeks, we doubled that pace and um, we, we wanted to see what would happen. And boy, it sure looks like to us that our traffic has gone up from that. So if, if that is your hypothesis, uh, then you should go, you can verify that in one of two ways. You can go look at the data and say, here's the posts that we produced. That they, are they the ones that have actually gotten more traffic or not? Or you could experiment by cutting down your uh, post quantity back to the original level, watching it for another few weeks to see if the traffic falls commensurately, and then you know bring it back up and see if it rises commensurately. So I think those types of experimentation, um, it's it's awesome to draw the the hypothesis from the correlation. It's terrible to draw a conclusion from the from from the correlation, right? So this is kind of the it, it's almost like a scientific practice, right? You don't want to. You don't want to assume, you want to verify. And you try to test one thing at a time or to remove one part of the equation at a time in order to make sure yeah. that there's causation, right? Yeah, you, you try and limit your variables as much as possible. Granted, in a complex business scenario where there are lots of inputs, that can be a challenge um, and you have to use your best judgment. There have been plenty of times at Moz where, we, where we've gone, well, we know it's best practice to do this, but this is having such a positive effect and we really need this positive effect right now. So let's just not change it for, for the time being, right? We'll go, we'll go and measure the data uh, and let the data lead us to a conclusion rather than actually, you know, cutting our posts in half again or something like that. Yeah, because I suppose you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot by testing things that are working and just stop doing them just to test them. That makes total sense. As I mentioned before, you're probably one of the most transparent marketer I've ever come across. You've been sharing content like you've been sharing about your mental health, you've been sharing about your financial situation, you've been sharing about why you moved from CEO to to the wizard that you are today and how you almost regretted the decision. You like 
it's mind blowing how honest and transparent you are. So I'm going to try to to attempt something almost impossible today. Can you share something you've never told anyone about Moz or yourself in the in the work you've done? Yeah, I'll share a, a story that really frustrates me that I haven't written about and haven't talked about publicly, but would like to in in the near future. So, you know, maybe this uh, in the next few months, maybe I'll try and I'll try and write something about this. So, you know, we're we're recording today on on March 9th. Uh, yesterday was was uh, International Women's Day. Um, Moz has, you know, Moz was uh, my co-founder at Moz was my mom. Our first investor was Michelle Goldberg from Ignition. You know, for for many years, um, our board of directors and our uh, executive team were, um, you know, more women than men, or or balance of women and men. So Moz has always been a very, you know, gender balanced um, kind of company, at least in the leadership. Uh, we've struggled on engineering for sure, just like just like I think every other tech company, uh, and and this is something that's really important to us. Nevertheless, uh, despite you know a deep passion for um, you know, feminism and equality uh, at Moz. Uh, we a few years ago uh, hired someone who you know had worked at a big, big company previously. Uh, came very highly recommended. Someone at, at Moz, um, you know, really trusted them and liked them. Brought them onto their team, uh, and this person, you know, unfortunately turned out to be someone who was extremely good at like playing politics, right? Internal company style politics um, and was kind of awful in the way that they treated uh, not their team, but people around them and people they interacted with. And um, that included some, you know, uh, the kind of sexism where if it gets reported to HR, like that person's fired that day, just awful, awful stuff. And I, I didn't find out about it for probably six months you know, uh, after it happened, even when I did find out about it, uh, when I sort of brought it up to other people at the uh, exec team and and our folks, they basically said, look, we need, you know, we need the people uh, to whom this happened to actually go and report it. Um, that was not the case, right? They didn't feel comfortable bringing it up. Um, eventually, this person got let go uh, for, for other reasons. But it, it drove me bananas, right? That you can care so deeply about this issue that you can like build so many structures to try and prevent it and that it still seeps into your organization. Um, I think that kind of, this is one of those things where I, I am deeply frustrated about it and I don't necessarily have a solution to it, right? Like I, uh, I have yet to discover how do you weed out these sort of cancerous people inside your organization who do a great job of making themselves look good to their managers um, and to the executives of the company and their particular team really likes them, but they are poisonous to, you know, large units around them uh, in the company. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in sexist kinds of ways, right? It can be in other ones, but that, I, I wish I had a good answer to that, right? I think that's some, I think that's a downfall of many many companies. You know, I know that this person caused uh, at least one very talented person to leave Moz. And and, and I wish she was still there. Um, I, I don't know what to do about that. So let me share my thoughts. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, first of all. I really appreciate it. What I think is happening is 
I would consider a company to be, let's say, like a human body, right? And the CEO is the brain. The CEO is not aware. The brain is not aware of all the little things that your body does in on on a, every second, right? Your your brain doesn't actually tell you uh, actively that your digestive system needs to work or that your legs need to move. It all happens in the background. So I think it's a little bit like you as a CEO, like yeah, like as a past CEO, where the people in your team were kind of the the autopilot function of your body. Like they work on their own. They don't really need you to actively do things. But very much like the analogy of cancer, even the best brain, even the best body sometimes can't help having cancer cells coming up. And I don't think that this is something that is the brain's fault or the body's fault. It just happens because just you just with the millions of cells or billion of cells you have in your body, sometimes somehow some bad things will happen. It's just evolution. It's just the way cells mutate, right? So I think it's the exact same thing for you. You you just, you shouldn't beat yourself up because it just happens. It's just probability. Like you can't have 100% certainty about things. You can be pretty close, but sometimes it will happen. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if it's just, that's a great analogy, actually. I wonder if there's something to the, you know, you need a, a process where you're, you sort of train your white blood cells to know what to attack and what not to. And you run that process semi-regularly and try and flush out. Can't, right? You go into the doctor for a checkup on a, on a regular basis and eh, hopefully they find stuff, right? And then, yeah, but and sometimes then it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes your white cells discover a new type of virus or microbes they've never seen before and they just don't know what to do with it. And, and you just need to come up with a solution after that. So it took you six months. It's not a bad I'm out of time. Um, I'm not going to s- name the company recently that has made the news for this particular reason, but it took them longer. <laughs> I mean, I think well, if we're talking about Uber here, like they, they clearly intentionally crafted, you know, a body built of cancer, <laughs> right? And then they use that as a tool in their um, arsenal to sort of fight the powers of uh law enforcement and government. And I think that's no, you know, it's no surprise that an organization like that would, um, would have this sort of system, but yeah, that's uh, a little more black hat, you know, tech startup growth hack <laughs> methodology there. Quite the black hat. But yeah. For I sure. really appreciate that. I, actually, Louis, I think that um, it's pretty amazing to hear, you know, such, such wisdom and comfort Um you know, in just a few seconds after I told you the story, that's, that's really amazing. My pleasure. Now it, it's, and um, just for the record, it's coming from a book called Incognito, the secret life of the brain. And oh. the, the author there is actually making this exact analogy between the CEO being the brain and the body being the people. So it's not as if I came up with that on my own. I'm not that smart. However, <laughs> I do remember stuff and I, sometimes I make analogy between things and yeah, that I'm struck me as a good it's a very good book, and I think you, you'll really like it. Right, moving on to much more a bit subjects and moving on to more marketing-related topic. Why do you think marketers have a bad reputation in general? Yeah, I think that the vast majority of marketing that uh, we as consumers, you know, either uh, business consumers or, or um, you know, B2C type of consumers are faced with and the, and the types of marketing that we remember that we're exposed to uh, are almost exclusively the negative ones, 
right? So you don't remember great marketing like, oh, I, you know, I heard a podcast, there was this really interesting guest. So I went and checked out their blog and I loved what they were doing. So I subscribed. And then a few months later, I actually needed the product that their company offers. And so I bought it. You don't even think of that as marketing, right? That's not, um, and that doesn't create the association of, wow, that was really good marketing. I like marketers. The associations that we build are, I got spammed. I got this crappy email. I got, you know, hoodwinked. Uh, I got, I saw these terrible ads, I got interrupted when I was, you know, watching this television program by, you know, this junk. Um, I was uh, at a at a conference and I had, you know, someone um, treat me like, uh, you know, like I was just a piece of meat at an auction, and you know, and they were just trying to sell me actively. And those are the associations that people actively remember with marketers. So I think that when you're exposed to good marketing, you don't even recognize or, or remember it as marketing. I think if you cognitively process it and think about it, you'll be like, oh yeah, I guess that technically is marketing. But the bad marketing is the, is the one that sticks. And hence, marketers get the reputation that's associated with what may only be a fraction of the actual you know, marketing professional world, but we all get tagged with it. Hmm. I actually never thought about it this way. So good marketing is invisible, really. Um, unless it's a fantastic experience. However, I, um, let me contradict you a little bit. I do see a lot of shares on social media or even people, and I do hear a lot of friends or, or family members who would talk about their very good experience they had. I mean, just out, out of the top of my head, I remember this letter that this kid sent to Lego recently about the fact that they wanted to work with them. And they answered back with this very sweet letter and the post went viral. Um, so, so wait, but let me interrupt you real quick. Yeah. When people talk to you about it, right? When family members or people outside the marketing world, did they say to you, gosh, Lego's marketers are so smart and good? Or did they say, I love Lego. They're such a great company. Good point. I, I, I'm just saying, like, I think when it's good marketing, the credit does not go to the marketers. Right. Like the, e even if it's not invisible marketing, the marketer themselves becomes invisible. A lot of the time, not all the time. Right. I'm not saying this is 100 percent, but I think much of the time when there's those positive experiences, um, people associate it with like the brand experience or the product experience rather than the. Oh, that's really good marketing. Um, yeah, I, so, I that's a good point. There's, there, there, is some, there are some counterpoints. Um, I think like an example, um, so in, you know, in the United States, we have this weird tradition of uh, uh, watching, we sort of all watch one football game a year, the Super Bowl, um, and many people watch it just for the advertisements, and those advertisements often receive a lot of, you know, both sides, right, positive praise and negative uh, attention. But when it does get positive praise, I think that's one of the few times when marketers get recognized as like, oh, wow, that's great marketing. Um, but beyond, you know, outside of great advertising, I'm not sure that marketers get much credit uh, for their work. And that I think, unfortunately, that actually biases a lot of a lot of startups and entrepreneurs um, and people who are building companies to think that marketing either isn't important or 
shouldn't be part of their early processes, right? They sort of think of it as, hey, if I build a great product, that'll do everything I need it to do instead of a, look, a, a lot of people build great products that are that never go anywhere. Why is that? Well, they never got in front of enough customers or the right customers. They couldn't build attention. Um, and then I think on the, on the flip side of that, there's a lot of people who are able to get in front of tons of folks, don't have that great of a product, but because people know them and have an association with them, they're able to sell a lot of their product. And, and oftentimes they can improve that product over time. Um, I actually think Moz is kind of that way. We were a marketing first startup, right? And we had you know, a really crappy little product in 2007, but lots of people subscribed to it because tons of the right audience was reading our blog and paying attention to us and visiting the site. And then that, um, that kind of snowballed into this, hey, now we have some money to turn this into a real product and let's go build a link index. And, you know, we were one of the first folks to do that. And then we launched it. It was this, you know, uh, big revolution. And, you know, now, now we have more substantive competition. And I would say, you know, we're always vying with a few folks out there for best in class at, you know, uh, particular SEO product X. But um, yeah, I think that, it was very much a marketing first as opposed to a product first kind of startup. Um, yeah, I think I think you touched a very uh, talked about a very interesting point, and that explains a lot why a lot of people will be biased against marketing because good marketing is almost invisible. The good marketers are almost invisible, and I think yeah, our job as as marketers who want to do good should should be to almost disappear so that the brand speaks for itself, the experience speaks for itself. It seems seamless, but it actually takes a lot of work. Um, yeah. What so-called best practices are just plain wrong in the field of marketing, you think? Um, I think one of the best practices that I see espoused all the time and that I think is totally false is that folks uh, basically will build a product and then they immediately think that uh, paid marketing channels are how they generate you know, their initial traffic and interest. And... Uh, the the curious thing about that is, and there, there's been some great research. Um, I think one of the folks who put it out there was uh, was WordStream actually. So what they what they looked at is they looked at uh, brands and content that performed very well in paid marketing channels: AdWords, Facebook, you know, um, I think retargeting and remarketing ads, display ads, all this kind of stuff. And what they found is that if you already have a positive association with the brand. If you visited the website a couple of times already, uh, then it is very likely that those you know, paid ads will have high ROI. But if you have no experience, you haven't heard of the company before, you've never seen their website, uh, you, your paid ad effectiveness is crap. Like it's just, it's awful. Um, and as a result, you know, that, that makes me think that the best practice should be don't invest in paid ads until and unless you know you have some brand equity and affinity and uh, some organic traffic that you to the audience you're, you're trying to reach with those paid ads. Because you can dramatically boost the effectiveness. You can spend half the money and get twice the return uh, if you can get in front of that audience in organic ways first. And so I think that I would, I would urge companies, not just marketers, because I think a lot of this is like, you know, solo entrepreneurs and small product teams, and that kind of stuff. I would urge them to think about how am I going to get in front of this audience and their influencers? Why will they amplify me? 
who are the people doing that uh, before I think about how am I going to go spend money to get new customers. The listeners don't see that, but I'm nodding constantly for the last 10 minutes. Uh, the reason why is that DHH from Basecamp told me something quite similar that I like when I hear two people I respect a lot saying the exact same thing. He was saying that remarketing, retargeting, paid ads, unless your brand is very well known and you have a lot of respect for your brand, those channels generally don't bring incremental customers, new incremental customers. They're just right. helping, but they would have converted anyway. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. So I, I'm on the uh, board of directors of a company here in Seattle. It's a small startup called Haiku Deck, uh, and they do, you know, presentation software. They're sort of like a uh, PowerPoint, but for teachers and educators and presenters who don't want to learn PowerPoint or don't have time to build a formal PowerPoint. And so it's, you know, sort of a very easy drag and drop. You don't even have to drag and drop it. But the I, the challenge that they're having is exactly this, where essentially it's it's like a chicken and egg problem. Um, you know, we can spend this much on paid ads and get you know this many new customers, but the cost is quite high. And how do we get in front of these people first? And you know, I think they've built up um, a very very powerful um, and impressive you know paid marketing system. They've they've finely tuned all those channels. They've got their conversion rate optimization dialed in. They've done tons of pricing tests. You know, they've just optimized the heck out of this. I think they've, you know, they've really done like the 80%, you know, gotten to that 80% in the last 20 is going to be, you know, lower returns and, and incredibly hard to make incremental progress on. But on the flip side, very few people have heard of them, right? Like Haiku Deck just doesn't have a, a, a well-known brand. And if people, you know, if they could build this association in the minds of, a few million folks, even a few hundred thousand folks, that if you want a simpler presentation software than PowerPoint, you should try Haiku Deck, right? Then I think that all those paid ads would work that much better. I compare and contrast that to someone like Buffer, who's done this phenomenal job of branding. Like, I think millions of people who, who have never used Buffer, and maybe never will, know who they are, like them, trust them, have this positive association with them. And we generally know what they do. Where they're like, oh, yeah, they do like the social media scheduling. Um, I don't actually, I don't personally use them because I do all my social media updates in real time, which maybe is dumb. Maybe I should, you know, try some scheduling stuff. But um, for my personal account, I should say Moz uses it for um, uh, scheduling. But that's one of those, you know, situations where uh, they can do paid advertising, and they've done a few case studies around their paid ad effectiveness. And you can see that it's just, you know, it's pretty outstanding. Like they can really get high returns by being in front of people when they're looking for that because people already have that positive association. That brings me very nicely to the next thing I wanted to discuss. And in this section, I'd like to go a little bit more in depth so that listeners can take away a few actions they can genuinely do tomorrow or even today to go towards their goals and, and, and increase, reach their objectives. So there's one quote I really like from you, and it's actually a tweet that is pinned on your profile, which is the best way to sell something is not to sell anything. Uh, you need to earn the awareness, the respect, and the trust of those who might buy. Right. So I think it's, it, it fits very nicely with, with what you just said. Let's start from the start. Let's take the exact example you took from this startup you are on the board of, uh, board of director of, of, and they need to build awareness. So they need to build branding. They need to, to create, 
this kind of uh, brand equity so that people recognize them and associate them with one or two worlds. How do you do that? Let's start with uh, try to find steps that people can take away today. Yeah, I, my my favorite process is to uh, identify the audience you're trying to reach. So who are who are the buyers? In the case of uh, Haiku Deck, most of their buyers right now are educators of some kind. Um, some of them are online educators, but many of them are classroom educators. Uh, a large number are at public and private schools in the United States. And once you've identified that audience, you want to find the channels, the media, uh, the social accounts, and the individuals that influence them. Uh, and then from there, once you have that, that set of, of people and channels and, uh, and influencers, you want to find out how do I get in front of them, right? And then you're, then you're essentially doing the hypothesis, execute, iterate. So let process. me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you. Let's go back to first step one. Yeah. How do I find out what influencers or people influence my customers? Like what tools sure. should I use uh, to do that? Uh, so I, I would use first off, uh, hopefully, if you are building product in your early stage, uh, you have a lot of direct one-to-one -one customer connections and relationships with those people, right? So Adam Tratt, who's the uh, CEO and founder of Haiku Deck, um, you know, he personally knows a few hundred of uh, Haiku Deck's customers and, and many of their best ones, right? So one of the things that I would certainly urge founders to do, um, product, you know, product folks to do is to have uh, meaningful in-person or phone or email is okay conversations with those folks. Uh, second tactic is surveys. Right, so asking your customers to to take a survey um, and and give you some of their preferences and those kinds of things. Uh, the third one is to use uh, some of the social media tools to identify your customers. So if you use a tool like um, Full Contact, you can plug in an email address from someone who might have bought your product, and you can get all their social accounts that are associated. Or you can just use Google Search, right, and usually figure figure that out for a large number. Uh, build a spreadsheet with you know a sample set of a hundred of your customers or twenty of your customers if that's all you've got, uh, and then you can go manually if you have the time and you have a small enough you know customer group, you can go manually research who their influencers are. Right, who are they following? Who do they retweet and amplify the most? Uh, what do they share on LinkedIn? What do they put on their profile page? Uh, what are they sharing on Facebook if they have a, a public Facebook account? Um, what, where are they going and doing and who are they following on Instagram, right? All that kind of stuff. Uh, or you can use some tools. There's a, um, if, if you want to pay a lot of money, you know, there's tools like um, Radiant 6 or Crimson Hexagon. Uh, if you're looking at, you know, smaller or, or mid-sized amounts, you can use tools like uh, Sprinkler. Uh, Sprout Social will do some of that. Uh, Follower Wonk is cheap and it'll do some of that for Twitter. Um, uh Side note, uh, Follower Wonk is still owned by Moz. We're in the process of selling it, but still owned by Moz. So I want to make sure I disclose that. Uh, and there's, there's some other tools uh, like that. I think Hootsuite has some you know, stuff to do. So it depends on how big you are and, and whether you want to pay you know, to, to use a tool to do it or whether it's small, you can get a small enough group and you can do the manual analysis or have one of your product folks or an intern do that analysis for you. Um, but yes, that, that is how you discover, 
you know, the answers to all those questions of, you know, who's in my audience, who are their influencers. And then once you have that set of influencers and influencers, I, I mean, both, you know, I mean, brands, I mean, media outlets, I mean, uh, blogs or podcasts or, you know, whatever they're paying attention to or individual people that they're paying attention to, right? Maybe it's, uh, Hey, these folks are completely off social media, but, uh, twice a year, they always go to this conference and you know, that that's where my buyers are. I know they'll be at this event. I know that they'll be paying attention to these speakers, right? Those are their influencers. Or I remember, you know, a few years ago, many years ago now, uh, I did work in the commercial real estate industry and commercial real estate brokers. They are not on Twitter. Like <laughs> they are not on Facebook. They are not on LinkedIn. Like they just, maybe they're on LinkedIn a little bit. Right. But that they're like it, kind of in this invisible world, but there is this one publication. Um, I can't remember the name now, but there's this one publication that they all read and they read it like physical paper read it. I think some of them get it in an email, but you know, that's the publication to be in, right? I, I want, how do I get the writers of that publication to talk, to talk about me in, you know, this commercial real estate journal, um, on a regular basis. Right. And so that's where you do that, uh, hypothesis, experimentation, iteration, where you say, Hey, I think if we produce this kind of data, the commercial real estate journal will cover us, right? They'll write about it. They'll include the graph that we came up with. They'll cite the source and, you know, and our brand name will be better known and maybe we'll get a link in the email and that kind of thing. Okay, let's go, let's go find that data and get it, produce it, email those folks, tell them we have it, ask if they'd like, you know, tell them we, we can give them reproduction rights, that kind of thing. Uh, ask if they want us to post the first version on their website, you know, those kinds of things. That doesn't work. Okay. New, new hypothesis. Let's see if we can do it by contacting one of their existing writers and building a relationship with that person. Okay, that didn't work. All right, let's see if we can uh, do some advertising with them, right? We'll do straight up advertising with the journal. Let's see if that gets us uh, the return that we're looking for and more people know it. You know, so it's that sort of, in whatever medium you're trying to reach, whatever influence you're trying to reach, you'll come up with a bunch of ideas, you know, brainstorm them, write them all down, prioritize them by what you think will work best, and then go through that list until you find the one that, that's working for you with that person. So to summarize the first step, the awareness stage, what you want to do is to find out who are your customers paying attention to, right? Yeah. If we had to summarize it in one question. So once you know that and you try to, you create experiment and try to reach out to them and, and, and make them amplify your content somewhere or another, how do you gain people's respect? Uh, I think I think that is a matter of what we talked about early in our conversation uh, around uh, empathy, right? Empathy for people and, and emotional intelligence of knowing what kinds of folks you're reaching and what they like and respect. Um, and if you've done some early customer development, you likely have a good sense of who you are and who they are and where the where the match comes into, into play. I, I wish there was a, you know, that I could give you a very technical process, but I don't think that's how relationship building works, right? It's sort of like, um, it's like dating. D please don't read a, like how to go on dates book, right? Like don't, you know, um, be a good person, treat others kindly and with respect, offer to help them, um, only do things with their, not just full consent, but like that, that they actually strongly want you to do. Um, 
you know, that, that sort of, um, I think emotional intelligence, intuition, um, that is, that's what makes for uh, a great marketer at that respect building stage. And, you know, very frankly, there are different kinds of people who respect different kinds of activities, um, and different kinds of companies and people. And that's why, you know, you can have someone, you could have someone on this podcast, right. Who would give you a, an extremely aggressive, much more sort of, um, yeah, like we were talking about like a Donald Trump esque, you know, style of marketing and that can be effective too, right? This is not a, oh, Rand's method is, you know, or the one that we're talking about right now is the only one that works. It's definitely the one that works for me, right? Um, and I don't, I don't want to pursue those other methods, but there are other ways uh, or, or there are other styles that work. And you are, you're going to figure out um, through that process what style works for you and your audience. I'm going to contradict you here. I, I think that long-term... This is the only way that marketing can be. Let's take a step back and think about humans and the way we are. We are social animals. We are not, we are not this way for the last hundred years. We've been this way for millions, hundreds of millions of years. And there are reasons why we are this way. I think that if marketers do exactly as you say, build up empathy, emotional intelligence, connect with people. These are the, the first principles that will never change. People are the way they are. It's not because Twitter is here, Facebook is here, Google is here that will change. So I'm going to contradict you and say, yeah, I, I will take a stand and say, this is probably the only long-term way to genuinely make people care about what you do. You might have some short-term hacks and tricks and tips that might work for a few months. However, I would question this approach, those approaches in the long term. Yeah, I, I think we agree on that. I, I like what Andrew Chen says, where there's sort of this like uh, the law of shitty click-through rates, right? Essentially, when a when a new platform or a uh, or new opportunities emerge, there's sort of this this ability to be an early adopter, be very aggressive, be very you know hacky, um, and succeed with it. And then as people start to uh, use and abuse those systems, and they get overrun you know, the, the, the click through rate or the engagement rate or the effectiveness rate drops, um, and drops dramatically to a near zero level. Um, you know, one of those might be, remember the early days of the internet where you had the, uh, uh, the pop overs and the pop unders, right. And that it sort of worked for a while. Like it was effective enough that many, many people did it. And then of course we all started, you know, uh, a ignoring them and b installing browsers that would prevent them. From happening, right? Same thing happened with you know Google AdWords in the early days. So you could be a company that no one had ever heard of, but if you bought Google Ads and you appeared in the top, uh, you know above the ordinary results, a good portion of people would click on you and trust you because they trusted Google, right? And so and they just sort of thought like, oh okay, this person advertising on Google, let me go check them out. And the conversion rates were decent, and then it got recognized and people got used to Google, they got used to advertising on the web and those effectiveness rates dropped. And now we're having the conversation where we say, basically, if nobody, if you don't, if you're not already getting in front of an audience that knows you and likes you and trusts you, your advertising effective rate is going to be dramatically worse. This was true in Facebook advertising too. It's true in Instagram advertising. Um, you know, it was true when uh, Airbnb spammed the shit out of Craigslist. Um, you know, I think it, it's, it was true when Uber went and uh, used what, what was that? What was that called? Oh, the grayballing app, 
right, that they developed to avoid um, uh, all these, um, you know, legal issues in a bunch of cities that they went into illegally. And, you know, now those cities are going to be smart. If you're, you know, if you're Lyft or you're the next competitor and you try and pull, do that, they're going to be on to you, right? Uh, so it's it's that law of shitty click-through rates. These, these hacks, these approaches can work initially, but then it's very tough um, to make it work long-term. So we talked about awareness, respect, and we touched on trust briefly. Is there, are there any other things, once I've done those two things first, to build trust with, with, with customers? Do I have to build a good product and a good service to earn trust? Yes, certainly over the long term, if you want to keep people around, you have to actually um, provide a product that, that helps them and that serves them. However, I want to say that, that uh, from a marketer's perspective, because marketers very often don't get to control much of the product itself, the product experience or you know, what the product does. I, I think you know, great companies do have serious conversations between product developers and the, you know, the architects of the product uh, and the marketers who are going out and talking to customers and understanding their behavior and those kinds of things. Um, and they use that intelligence. But um, there's a few other things that marketers can do to help with retention um, and awareness. And some of those are uh, helping people to see, let's see, helping people to un better understand the value of the product that they've already bought. Right. So if there's things that the product does for your customers, but your customers aren't using those or they don't understand them, oftentimes it's actually the marketer's job to help showcase that. And I think too, far too few companies, Moz included, do a great job of, of, of advertising and promoting uh, and showing off the you bought this. Let me show you the thing that it does. Right. Like, let me show you how to use this so that you can get a return. And oh, by the way, you. I don't know if you checked this out, but a month ago we changed it to do this other thing that I know you need and want, uh, and I have to get in front of you again and, and keep marketing. I think that many times marketers think the conversion is the last point of touch between marketers and customers, uh, and that shouldn't be the case in a SaaS business, right? You you have an ongoing team. So one of the things we've done at Moz is we actually have a retention marketing uh, person full time on each of our products. Uh, Moz Local and Moz Pro, and and you know Kelly on on Moz Pro, is thinking only about how do I get people who already are customers of Pro to be aware of the things Pro is doing, to engage with it again, to show off that value. Um, we built a customer success team internally, whose job it is to like have a phone call uh, with people who've signed up. Uh, I think after their uh, in their first paying month, so they have a free trial month, and then in their first pay paying month, they have a phone call and they walk people through it. And then they, you know, stay connected through email to them and try and help them out long term. Um, that certainly affected churn rate positively for us. So. I have two other questions for you. Uh, the first, sure. the first one is uh, a lot of people are reaching out to me. Um, they're not necessarily marketing right now, but they are really interested in it. And they would ask me, you know, what's my advice? so that they can find a first job in marketing. So what mm. would be your advice to them? Specialize. Specialize, right? Um, <laughs> find, find something that, that, uh, that you love and are particularly passionate about. That could be a, you know, a vertical area, like um, I love 
the food and beverage world, or I love travel, or um, I'm really passionate about uh, uh, software as a service, B2B uh, SaaS, or I'm really passionate about uh, e-commerce or whatever it is, right? Could be even more specialized. I really like to help people who do um, um, food and food and beverage uh, e-commerce, right? Super specific. Great. That that specialty is one way you can go. The other way you can go is on a particular tactic, right? So you could say, I am the best uh, Facebook advertising person you will ever find, or um, I am the best um, uh, technical SEO for you know site architecture and and fixing errors and issues that you will find out there, or I am the I am the best retention marketer for uh, subscription products, the physical subscription products out there. And there's, I think that specialization, right? Having that passion, understanding that particular realm is a great way to get hired by one of those companies. And, you know, if you can align your interests to a dozen companies who do that and you can, you know, uh, have, have a blog, even if it's a blog that nobody reads except your potential new employer, where you are dissecting and analyzing and providing smart advice on your particular area of expertise, you know, that's a great way to show it off. Just like for an engineer or programmer, uh, having a GitHub repository with a bunch of cool side projects is a phenomenal way to get hired. Even if you are completely crap at a whiteboard interview, um, you know, they can tell from looking at your projects, oh, this person knows how to build software and I can see that they know what they're doing. Even if they can't do a bubble sort on a whiteboard, that's okay. So don't be afraid to specialize and then learn, get deep into the subject and get to know your subject better than most people. And show it off publicly some way, right? Give, give someone a way to give a, um, an interviewer, a recruiter, a company, um, a product person, a way to go visit your work and see what you know um, and get excited about it from there. What are the top three resources you would recommend SaaS marketer, digital marketer uh, to read or consume? Let's see. I think it's crucially important that marketers understand people and what motivates them and how they behave. And so I think that reading about psychology, there's a famous book by uh, Influence by Robert Cialdini. I'm sure folks have recommended that to you in the past, but I, I would certainly... Uh, add my plus one to that. And there's lots of other books in that uh, category. You know, I think Nudge is a great book on that front. Uh, Predictably Irrational, right, from Dan Ariely. Those kinds of things are great. Let's see, I would I would also suggest as a marketer, try and from there, I'd go and identify your area of, speci- of speciality. And then I would go find two things. One, I would find a conference or event that resonates with you that you love. And I would try to go to that event or events like it, you know, at least once a year. And then I would also try and find a, a blog or a few blogs or a podcast or something in that realm of your expertise. And I would pursue that, you know, so if it's, if it's SEO, maybe you say, well, you know, I'm deep into SEO. I really like Moz and MozCon, you know, that I'm going to read the Moz blog and I'm going to go to MozCon or you know, I tremendously love SEO. And so I'm going to read Search Engine Land and I'm going to go to the Search Love Conference series from Distilled or, or the SMX Conference series or whatever it is, right? So you find the one that resonates with you. If it's um, social media marketing, right, you might say like, hey, I'm going to go to uh, um, uh, Social Media World every year and I'm going to um, be reading, you know, the Hootsuite blog and 
that kind of thing. Rand, you've been superb. You made me think about a lot of stuff I didn't think about before, and I'm sure listeners would have learned a lot from you. So once again, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing i like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on itunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.